Hello and welcome to This Is Your Life Path, a podcast where I sit down with tabletop game designers and we have a chat about all of the things that have influenced and inspired them away from the tabletop world. I'm your host Kayla, I'm a game designer myself and I publish as Ratwave Gamehouse. This is a weird episode today though, where I am not acting as the interviewer and have brought back a previous guest, a friend of the pot, to act as the interviewer for today's episode. Zach, would you like to introduce yourself again? You don't have to. Hello everyone, Uh, my name is Zach, I am the Jelly Muppet on most of the internet. Uh, I run Soul Muppet Publishing and I've been on this podcast before, was I episode 3 or episode 2 or something? I can't remember. I think you were episode three released. Yes. You were the first episode I recorded. And it's why your audio quality is worse than every other episode. <laughs> so I got a new mic after Classic. we did ours. Well, yeah, no, happy to be here. It's good I, I, I'm, I'm, I hope someone enjoyed it. But yeah, it's it's not about me today. It's it's about you. We're interviewing about other your your work and I guess also terminal. Right? Yeah. Which is fun. Um, yeah, terminal specifically. So, this is a special one off episode, like between seasons. I didn't say this on the podcast, but like I'm taking it in seasons. So, we've had season one. We'll do season two at some point um, when I line up some more guests and get a bit of a head of time. This is a between ones because of terminal, which we'll talk a bit more about. Yeah. Uh, who, who are you, my dear friend, Kayla? Who are you? <laughs> uh, I am Kayla Dice. I release games as Ratwave Gamehouse. I have made about 16 games at the last count. I make I make a lot of stuff. Like people have commented that I'm like prolific. Um until now, everything I've done has essentially been like by myself. Um, you know, any art would be like photo collage by me or would be public domain art or stock art that I'd bought licenses to. Um, So for ages, I was a real like sort of solo operator. And I've often said my games focus on the themes of like alienation and connection. Um, They're all very sort of mechanically different, uh, which is sometimes frustrating. I feel like I can't necessarily market something and be like, oh, if you like Wild Duelist, you'll like transgender deathmatch legend i'm not sure that's true um but thematically i think is where a lot of my work is more similar than probably like yeah the games i'm most known for if i'm known for games i don't know if that's true or not like transgender deathmatch legend um follow me in the night uh a cursed radio old gods and young guns maybe um, and this year, I was a winner of the Diana Jones Emerging Designer Program. And I am crowdfunding a new game, which we'll talk about more today. Yeah. Okay. So, um, we where did, where did you grow up? Like, what, what, was, your, what was your childhood like? Um, so, I was born in... Chester. Um, then when I was about one, one and a half, I ended up moving to uh, Grantham in Lincolnshire. Um, and 
I think in those early, like, so my dad was from Scotland, my mum was from Kent. I say my dad, like my biological dad. Um, and he used to work on like the railway. Like, I think they both did for a time. And so essentially, um, he would just like relocate our family for uh, very frequently. I think it happened to my mum a lot before I was born as well. Because like every single member of my family was born in an entirely different place. Um, he relocated our family like loads. Then when I was five, they divorced. Um, he eventually disappeared after a few years. And then I ended up moving to Essex when I was eight, where I lived until basically for about 10 years. So I often say if people ask me like the short answer is I always say like, oh, I grew up in Essex. Um, I don't necessarily give the whole like oh i was here in this place like i have memories of grantham i have no memories of chester um but i tend to say i grew up in essex before i moved to london um i don't like essex i'm sorry if there's anyone any essex fanboys in from essex mainly i'm sorry that you're in essex right now a place i do not like um yeah i talked a bit about this on the episode I did with Tanya Flocox we're kind of bonding over I suppose growing up in quite sort of like queer phobic areas or areas where we didn't feel able to sort of be ourselves so I think like the big theme of alienation which I say I come back to a lot does come from I think a sense of me growing up as someone who did not like the place I was growing up in and actually, I frequently had a sense like this place doesn't like me. Um, I don't think I don't necessarily know if places can dislike people. But that's how I felt as a kid. You know, I was bullied by people there. I was misunderstood by by teachers. I was sort of um, scorned at by random old people because we were like kids on bikes. Um, and so I always got the sense of like, this place doesn't like me. I don't like it. I am sad about that and I need to leave. And I think that's really what adds to a theme of alienation. Um, you know, very explicitly, I made How to Embrace a Swamp Preacher, which is a belonging outside belonging game about growing up in Essex. Um, like the setting there is virtually Essex. It's just kind of filtered. But even I can see it in Terminal, like a lot of characters in terminal that quotes of stuff about the idea of like i feel hated by the world and what do you do with that feeling yeah hmm. so when you were growing up what did you want to be when you grew up like did you know did you always know what you wanted to do do you even now know what you want to do <laughs> that's a great question um when i grew up I think when I was younger, I probably wanted to be a writer, um, which I suppose I am now technically, not in the way I would have imagined then. Um, I think I just had the sense of I wanted to be creative when I grew up. Um, so as a kid, it was probably like, oh, I want to be a writer. I guess I want to write books. That's what people who are creative do. Um, there was definitely a point I found like an old autism assessment of mine um, a while back, uh, which included quotes from my mum. I'm going to share the story, even though I feel it doesn't paint my mum in a great light. But whereas like, oh, Kayla says she'd like to be 
uh, a writer and an actor. I don't remember saying this or feeling that way, but um, and then add like a few sentences later, like Kayla's mum does not think she will become an actor. But I think that's probably this idea of like, oh, I wanted to be creative. I maybe like envied the idea of um, being someone who could perform things, but definitely when I was young, I didn't feel that was uh, accessible to me because I didn't feel very like socially gifted and it felt like an area where you needed to be social. As I got older, I ended up being very sort of drawn to like film and of the film industry. I ended up like more about film because i had this idea of like oh maybe i want to be a director or stuff but like i can i have no memory of wanting to do something with my time that wasn't necessarily creative um which i don't know yeah i am i in my mind i always thought that was common and then it turns out it's not so much but I think, to be honest, the truth was probably, if you asked me at age, like, 14 or 16, what I wanted to be when I grew up, I think my only answer was, like, not here. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, what was your first exposure to RPGs, then? Did that happen while you were growing up, or did it happen much later? Uh, Much later. I was probably about 21 or maybe even 22. But the first time I had um, an exposure to RPG, which was from, like social groups essentially and the first rpgs i exposed to were like indie ones like i have no frame of reference for how dungeons and dragons even works um it's not a thing i ever think about um and it's not a thing i've had an interest in ever i probably had some awareness of what it must have been when i was maybe like 18 17 or whatever because uh, i feel like it maybe permeated into pop culture a bit but i never thought about it as a thing i could do i was just i just ended up uh via sort of social connections at like an indie rpg yeah group. you were playing like so blades in the dark like, stuff was like one of your early role-playing games right you said that to me yeah blades in the dark um i ended up playing like a campaign of that like i'd done like monster hearts and then like a lot of like weird one shots and stuff um and i did i ended up like designing sync actually at that time which i never released or showed other people which was like a gm list like card trail thing which is like as i remember actually i reread it recently and i was like oh it's pretty solid like i'll probably like scrap it for parts into something else but i do also think there's the fact that like at least as i approach games i don't necessarily have this like I don't think anything I do is in conversation, either in a response or rejection with D&D at all. And I don't think that's the case for everyone, for instance. Yeah. I mean, a lot of designers come up through like um, different styles of games, and that's really influential to them. Like For me, I, I started in like very heavily in like old-school-inspired spaces, having been through D&D and kind of reaching there. So even though I like mostly write what i would consider story games now like the dna of the stuff i used to enjoy is really telling right if you come from a pure indie games background with like no understanding of like the culture of dnd or like how it works beyond like having maybe watched television or heard people look at memes on the internet like that's very different to like the the culture of play that exists around 
and like D and is like very hegemonic, right? You know, as a field. So mm. it's very interesting to be like, yeah, this is what games look like with a different set of like ancestral understanding. And like, I think you can often tell looking at someone's game, like, oh yeah, yeah this yeah. is someone's first thing they've written after they played D and D, right? Particularly in the sort of indie scene, right? Uh, I mean, for me, that was Best Left Buried. That was the first thing I tried to write after having done D&D. That's like the most trad game I've ever written. And everything since then has just been weirder and weirder and weirder. Um, But yeah. Yeah. So, Terminal. Terminal digital pirate action. Tell me about that. Yes. So, yeah, given the slogan there, Terminals, digital pirate action game, it is something I've described as the Matrix meets Black Sails, with bits of Twin Peaks and Paprika sprinkled in. It is coming to Kickstarter July 20th. I'll just throw that out now. So it's it's up front, and you can follow the Kickstarter at terminal.ratwave.uk. Sort of the fact that like what people think of as the real world, turn of the 21st century Earth, is nothing but a simulation. It has been designed by the robot authority who keep humanity trapped in there. And in the real world, which we call the wake, uh, pirates trawl the seas, they battle robots, they plug into the system, they brawl with nefarious programs, and they're sort of struggling to, to bring this whole system down. There is... A recurring sort of techno fable of a figure called the Omen, who is reincarnated through over centuries, capable of great power, struggles to bring the system down, and ultimately fails and is responsible for rebooting it. And this iteration of the terminal is close to its sort of system crash, essentially. Total system crash is coming. And it's either going to spell sort of death and disaster for the pirates or is an opportunity to take back their lives and shatter the the system that has kept people under control. It's a hack of inevitable, uh, your game, which we've talked about previously on the podcast. That, so that is why I'm here after sort all. Of story yeah. game engine, your characters are very built around their recommendations. <laughs> Um, and it's it's dramatic. It's in a sort of epic stake, epic scope. You know, you are swashbuckling cyberpunk misfits. It looks fucking sick. I mentioned before that everything I'd done previously had been sort of as a sole operator. Uh, this time I've, you know, written and made the game, but I'm working with Gorman Geist, who's an illustrator, as well as like a game designer and stuff in their own right. They made things like bubblegum wizards and bubblegum vampires. I'm working with them to illustrate the world and the art looks really beautiful. You can see some of that on various social medias. Um, And I've brought on Alyssa Ridley from Biscuit Fun Games as an editor. Yeah, so Terminal is like your first time working with an artist rather than using sort of like stuff you've made yourself by like kit bashing or photo bashing stuff together. How is that collaboration with another creative like how does that how's that felt to you what what impact do you feel like it's had on the creative process um i think it's been really amazing for sort of changing my own visualization of the project in some Mm -hmm. way um 
I think I can be quite sort of like a visual thinker and so often it's about like mapping the images in my head to different things. It does sometimes um, change the world of stuff. So for instance, I guess like conceptions of characters might, you know, be altered by different sort of visualizations, but also um, the world, the look of the game. So I'm going to do the layout for the game and like what I'm thinking about in layout in this case is how do I build the layout to like best show off all of this beautiful art? Whereas previously often like I'd lay out games by like figuring out how many pieces of art I need, then I would go and like find or make or source that. And so it's a different sort of flow of influence essentially. Okay. So thinking about terminal, there's like two big influences we talked about there, right? One of which is the matrix and the other bit is this like pirate fiction. The matrix is like something that it's super easy to imagine in this kind of game, right? You know, you've talked about the fact that it's a world where humanity is trapped. You are, you know, plugging yourselves into machines and entering this, you know, dreaming world and trying to fight robots and free people and overthrow the robot authority. Uh, but I guess I've got two questions. So I guess my first question is, what way do you feel that terminal like differs aesthetically from the matrix or like thematically as well? You know, I think a very big early, so the origins of the project and how the matrix came to is um, because you were, you know, um, I think you, I think I probably count with this when you were in the middle of kickstarting or about to start kickstarting. Mm -hmm inevitable and i was thinking like oh what other things could this system do matrix came up and then i was like pursuing that and yeah. thinking a lot about it um an early difference came up in terms of me unlocking the game was the fact that in the matrix the machines have all of the humans in these plugs and they need them for energy and they need them to survive that's not the case in terminals world at all there's actually no need for survival they're just the robot authority is just of this opinion that like, oh no, we know best. We know how people's lives should be, what they should look like, what they should do. You don't know this. You don't know what you need life to be. You need to be told it. And that changes, I think, the that has like, a, it's a really simple change, but I think it like hugely sort of reverberates throughout the thing. I think it ultimately makes the game a metaphor in some ways for abuse or at least brings that to mind um and brings to mind maybe different kinds of sort of authoritarianism in real life in terms of like it's sort of political parallel so that became became like a big difference that sort of singular change aesthetically i think like it's a lot of inspiration from the matrix but it's not always straightforwardly one-to-one -one. um yeah a big thing that like attracted me to Gorman Geist as an artist was I remember thinking like I want someone who can do action and I want someone who can do fashion and like if you see any individual character right you're like oh yeah this has got like definite sort of matrix vibes but it's rarely a sort of one-to-one -one of they're dressed like a character from the matrix it's more you know the matrix is very influenced by like I think like Berlin fetish clubs is my understanding mm -hmm. um 
and so this maybe carries forward an influence of like outfits i see people see people wearing at like queer nightclubs or raves or stuff or punk outfits as well um that sort of comes in one sort of big difference um and yeah it's a lot of then then i guess it's the thing of bringing in the pirate influence which mm -hmm. is has a big so sort like, of why why, why pirate into terms right. of because how that changes things from its inspiration. Why was that? The, why was pirates the plus one aesthetic that you went for? Because like, what, what was the what was the reasoning behind pirates? The genesis for where that oh. came together. <laughs> was it was it more complicated than pirates are cool and they dress well? I remember because I actually found my notebook. I say found. I just I knew where it was, and I was looking back because this was. The first time I started writing out ideas for this, I was writing them out on a notepad because I was on a coach. And that's where I did most of these early ideas. Um, and I realized I had digital pirate actually like as one of the first lines. So I must have thought of that very early in my mind. I thought I batted about ideas a bit longer. I think a big thing is as I thought of this game, I realized ultimately what this is doing more than the Matrix, is it is doing the Matrix sequels, and, and I'm a huge Matrix sequels defender. But I'm I mean, aware you're that not you're not a defender; sort of... you're an apologist. <laughs> I think I think there's a lot that is good there, um, and is very interesting, and it does take influence from stuff from within the sequels. But it's this idea of like you know, the Matrix is about Neo reaching his potential. The Matrix sequels are about kind of like the fight between. The humans and the machines um and terminal is ultimately about like the fight between the robot authority and the pirates of libertatia an issue i i remember i was thinking about a lot of stuff more explicitly and i think i was thinking things like how interesting is zion um i think like there's a lot of interesting questions that are raised by zion but also the idea in a game of if I was playing a Matrix game and it was like, yeah, okay, one of your adventures is entirely within Zion. I'd be a bit like, oh, I really would rather be in the Matrix, though. Um, that's funner. So some of an initial thing of why I was just like, it's like, how do I make this overworld setting more interesting? Um, I think that's also what led to eventually the flip of like, robots don't need that. Pirates, you know, it's this idea of, I figured very early on, you're still probably still going to be like a crew of people, and so traveling around, and so pirates made sense there. I think I was interested in like, well, what does this civilization look like, um, especially if it's something that's opposed to something that's so sort of authoritarian. The like way the world seems to work in Zion and the films is there's like a council and a commander, um... And, like, there's a, point, a line Morpheus gets in the film where it's like, oh, we're all, you know, sort of have a tendency to break the rules. And I'm like, that's really interesting because, like, you're all these people who are interested in breaking rules and not just doing what you're told. And you've set up a society that kind of functions not that differently from, like, Chains of Command in other stuff. Um, and so the idea of pirates and what that sometimes is used as a metaphor for when it comes to like fiction in terms of like a rejection of civilization and society's norms and stuff uh became very interesting and i think adding that in like really strengthened 
a lot of understanding I had of characters as I developed them. And then it was also the aesthetic thing. Pirates are cool. Pirates, aesthetically, um, it's quite easy to see, like, pirate aesthetics and, like, queer aesthetics mm -hmm. a lot. Um, and it just made it feel also, ultimately, more exciting to be playing the overworld stuff. If I'm, like, you're a cool sci-fi pirate on a hovercraft, the idea of me going, okay, one of the major story arcs is mainly on land. You're like, that's fine. I'm a cool pirate still, rather than being like, oh, I'd really just rather keep doing cool kung fu in the terminal, though. I think the genesis of this conversation, like, I remember me and you and a couple of other people talking about what things you could hack Inevitable into, right? That was, like, a, a big conversation we went through, I think. Yeah. We talked about Inevitable mechas, right, using that to do that. We talked about, I still intend to do um, some kind of Greek tragedy inevitable at some point that like replaces the deserts and the nights with like swords and togas and stuff. But like, mm. what do you feel like was the influence of inevitable on this game? You know, why, why, why did you decide to use that engine and that format? Partly was, it was so I think we'd mentioned this on the podcast before, but I'd like playtested um, Inevitable for you and really enjoyed the game, enjoyed playing it, found it really satisfying. And so sometimes when I approach things, often the system is just like, oh, I want to write something in this um, area. Like um, Swamp Creature definitely just came from like, oh, what I think I have a good like belonging outside belonging game in me while duelist was very much built around like oh, i'll take a crack at writing something with lumen so it was definitely like just some case of i want to play in this space in this system i think then in terms of the more bigger influence was a lot about sort of um interrogating similarities of themes and which themes i wanted to to carry forward you know there's so much that is often like about like sacrifice and what you're giving up and whether what you're giving up is still yeah. still makes winning worth it. Um, I think that was something that was really important to how terminal as the game became itself essentially. Mm -hmm. um, but it's also interesting like when you adapt something and what you don't necessarily take. Like I really love the inevitable as play to lose game but very early in the process i was like oh this terminal can't necessarily be played lose partly it's like you know once i've introduced the subtext of the game being a metaphor slightly for coercive control i feel it's a bit bleak to make sure. it play to lose um but also you know as a thing of just like oh the the it didn't it didn't follow as much so that became a thing of like okay what decisions in inevitable or what things like reflect this play to lose idea and what am i having both in place of that or how am i adapting like material there um that led to like some mechanical changes but also made me thinking about what am i emphasizing this for you know in the marketing and the way i talk about the game i'm a lot like yeah it's about burning things down uh, to build like 
a better world and a better future both like on a sort of personal level and on like a wider level um yeah and i think like a lot of that comes from a need to emphasize like there's still this big idea of sacrifice there's still this big idea of what are you willing to lose it's it's maybe like i guess terminal is maybe play to decide what you'll yeah. lose rather than play to lose i think the, like, the the most interesting like thematic difference to me is that the gay inevitable is about a civilization that is failing and a ultimately like a regime that we know is going to fall because of inevitability uh, and the fact that prophecy has declared it so and your characters play agents of that civilization like people who operate you know, knights and wizards and people of the court and agents of authority. You know, you get, you have the king's writ, which is the thing that says the king of this land, you are his agent, right? Whereas that's very much not the mechanical setup of of, of Terminal, right? While you might be like sort of instruments of a pirate court at Libertalia or whatever, um, you know, part of a sort of philosophy, because that's one of the things you pick during character creation, right? One of these philosophies about what we think we should do about the omen and the end of the world and uh, the terminal. Um, it's quite meaningful that like you are actually rebelling against the um, the, for- the, the the authoritarian parts of it, like the regime. You are very much like doing that, and that was one of the problems with like writing inevitable for me is like you are quite explicitly like agents of a monarchy, which is a thing that I, I personally do not believe in. I am a Republican, right? And part of the point of that book is about how actually I think that monarchies are bad, right? Uh, and that maybe this isn't something we should be trying to say. We should be looking after people. And to me, like the most terminal character in Inevitable is actually the Thronebreaker, right? Who is the sort of rebellious traitorous knight who sort of has decided that kings are a bad idea and that maybe we should run a democracy or at least something different and like that creating a big moral struggle for your characters and players about how to deal with this person who like is a virtuous traitor but like still opposes you in your way of life um and is like because like any person like you or I, which is like a, a young liberal queer person, right, is going to read that and go, well, I can't kill this woman. I, I personally think she's correct. Right, that's playing a character. But it's very interesting. Like, I think the <laughs> punk aesthetics of it. Right, and she should say it. Yeah. <laughs> These are the, the punk aesthetics and the sort of anti-authoritarian uh, leaning of these of your pirates, right, is a very, like, interesting and compelling setup that you don't often, like, see in a role-playing game. Like, you are playing revolutionaries, effectively, right? It's something that, like, you see in Spire, right? Yeah, it's... Which Spire the City must fall, which is one of Robert Decart's RPGs. Very well-beloved. But you kind of don't see that as the setup for the adventuring party very often. Yeah, it's... Like, Libertatia, the setting, is not the setting that is doomed. It's it's the terminal itself, a thing you kind of explicitly hate. Like, a struggle I had early on in the book is, like, why do you care, like, that this is crashing? And the obvious answer is, like, 
Well, if it crashes, everyone who's plugged in dies and you have a conscience. So you'd like to prevent yeah. that. You just don't want to keep rebooting it. But like, Libertatia's like, implicitly kind of like an anarcho-communist um, setting. Don't necessarily dwell too much on like the exact inner workings of it, but that was definitely something I had in mind and is how some of the characters were written. The interesting thing is how that affects certain mechanical setups that are virtually unchanged, but just like their emphasis has changed. Um, reputations, as I was writing them, I found it was interesting, like, oh, a lot of reputations in Inevitable, they do sort of relate to like your character's relationship you have with, with concepts like honor. Um, and when you are playing essentially like a group of outlaws and revolutionaries the idea of like i i honor probably doesn't hold as much to these characters um reputations are maybe not always going to be clear cut good or bad like um it's maybe less straight the idea of like a negative reputation is maybe a little less straightforward um and i think a lot of that comes from both the pirate influence song but also comes from the Matrix influence, and then some of it comes from obviously like my own personal like beliefs, likely. But it is interesting. Like the most terminal character in Inevitable is a Doom, who you have to defeat. Um, whereas I don't know who the most inevitable character in Doom is. Captain Wells. They... No question. That's it. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and who's the most likely to maybe, like, you know, reject the sort of anarcho-communism, which is so at the core of Libertatia and its operations. I mean, that would be my take. But I can absolutely... This is so. This is going to be so boring for yeah, people listening I feel to like... this. Uh, I can also imagine the archivist as sort of some, like, weird wizard doom in Inevitable, right? Someone who's like running around trying to pick up things yeah. from the city, and in so destroying and damaging it in some quite meaningful way. Uh, but you know, we don't need to write too many more crossovers. Um, but yeah, um, <laughs> what mechanics did you change of the game to like? And like, how did you feel like they aimed, um, they they assisted with the the, the themes? So, some of the optional rules changed just because a lot of them were sort of um, very thematic. The line is a rule in Inevitable, which I really like. Um, it just, it, I couldn't find a way to make it work in Terminal in the same way. The line is like, you know, you set up for your character in Inevitable, like a line that they won't cross, and it can be crossed as like offered to sort of, you know, defeat threats or stuff, but then there's sort of, you know, consequences and things like that um and i found it really interesting but i was just like i mean what line do you have like we've got the kind of like matrix thing of like yeah everyone who's plugged in they're ultimately still part of the system they'll die to protect it if you've got to kill them kill them um so it, did, it didn't make sense to have a line in the same way so sadly that was one i had to remove other times it was sort of uh changes in emphasis in some way but then a big change that ended up happening more recently and this was more via discussions with Alyssa the editor is showdowns changed slightly um so showdowns in inevitable 
you have collected various showdowns throughout the your build-up Theus's um, threat. Um, showdown tokens take away from the threat, and that creates a threshold. If you hit within that threshold when you roll, you succeed at a cost. A cost is what you've offered to get certain bonuses to your roll. If you roll over, you get like a clean defeat and don't have to pay the cost. Um, which to me like makes so much sense for inevitable in terms of this being play to lose and the fact that like you get to a certain point of threat where it's like oh it's no longer possible because of the cap on how many bonuses you can get from cost it's no longer possible to win and not pay this cost um and it's just about creating opportunities for how much or how little you might lose whereas the change it ended up being in terminal is your showdown tokens are added as a bonus to your role alongside costs um there's you are only trying to beat the threat and that's like a binary cost like succeed or failure and the cost always happens but also the um showdown the bonus for how much you can get from costs is uncapped so it's like you could offer as much as a cop plus eight but that would be always happening um and that's a change that i think works for terminal because like i've said it's this game about like what are you willing to blow up what are you willing to burn to destroy to give up to get the future you need to get free from this system it's so i think your decisions around the cost you're making are often more sort of clear-eyed but also that does make success ultimately a bit easier there are a couple of other minor tweaks um with that with how like end game stuff works where i was just like yeah i need to make the game like more winnable because that's just a difference of um you know thematic focus and stuff i think there may have also i'm trying to remember if there was any other minor or not minor any of the other optional rules or small rule sets where i, I ended think up you've covered like, most of the ones that i noticed while reading it modifying them and stuff yeah it's just yeah differences of sort of emphasis in trying to it's an interesting experience to take something from being play to lose to not play to lose without just uh, doing a bunch of like yeah you've written the trophy goal to my trophy dark right less is, is the argument right if you're familiar with that kind of language <laughs> like a lot of the stuff you write uh terminal has a lot of music in it right uh, there's a big influence here. I, I've certainly seen the uh, the playlist for Terminal. Uh, what what kind of music's on that? How does it how does how does music influence your creative decisions here? Yeah, uh, Terminal soundtrack soundtrack is such a pretentious way to say refer to a playlist I made. Um, but I, it's very. There's a lot of like sort of dark ambient, harsh noise, alternative hip hop, um, and then certain things which are relating to like um, media influences. So I've got some songs from Twin Peaks and the Twin Peaks soundtrack there. I do have Clubs to Death, which featured in The Matrix and like the Prodigy song that's in The Matrix. Um, so some other like EDM and stuff. I built that playlist and i build playlists for like most things i make partly sometimes it's like 
oh, I'm going to listen to this while I write, which I did a lot. Like, um, a lot of the terminal stuff is still in my own repeat because I listen to it so much while writing the book. Um, other times, though, it's often, like, sometimes just about, like, me helping me, like, crystallize a project a little bit. But, yeah, for Terminal, I definitely imagine stuff more as, like, a soundtrack to an action film. Um, so... Like I said, Dark I mean, it's a lot of stuff that's moody, that's uh, gritty, and that I could imagine, like, fight scenes taking place to. Um, and it's a very, un it's, like, sometimes I make, like, very, like, precise playlists. Uh, the playlist for How to Embrace a Swamp Creature is, like, is almost basically a narrative of the game in, in song, essentially. Um, whereas the playlist for Terminal is, like, three hours long, Anytime I hear a song and I'm like, ooh, that's a bit terminal, it goes on. And it's like um, a big sort of collective thing. I think, you know what's funny, is the I, relationship I think I have to playlisting um, is informed by your close personal friend, Kieran Gillen. Mm -hmm. um, and I think like some writer's notes he did about like playlisting with uh, comic books and stuff. And so that's where I actually draw that influence off, and it's why it's probably part of my process as a creative. Hmm. Can you tell me a bit more about that, like about the, the K K Kieran's approach and now yours? Um, I just remember, like, definitely for phonogram, the comic book is like music based, so I think it's like, uh, you know often like diegetic here's everything that's in it that is playing i think there was also like a playlist for like the wicked and the divine which was like a big sort of scrolling thing and some stuff i remember like listening to some of these plays and finding it interesting being like oh is this song about this character is this about that so sometimes when i'm doing more specific stuff that's i guess the lens i approach it through i'm sure maybe Kieran would probably describe their own process entirely different but that's what i took from it so like with Swamp Creature, this is just one because I can remember. It's like oh the open it's 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 named after a swamp, so that goes on there. And then it's like oh this is a song about the setting. This is a song about this specific feeling that I'm trying to capture. This is a song that collects there. Um, and other songs have been that where it's like I'm sometimes trying to be like this maps to different aspects of that. The terminal one is maybe more like vibesy than that. Um, for instance, just because I, I, there's no sea shanties in it, which would be a logical thing if I was trying to capture all different aspects. It's very much more a terminal soundtrack for inside the terminal. Yeah, and a lot of stuff relates more to specific influences. Like, oh, here's a song from this thing. Here's a song that reminds me of that. But other times, it's maybe like what like feels like the attitude of stuff and why I'm trying to like channel that attitude of get me in the mood i often think of like any playlist i make as like a focuser mm -hmm. like a oh i listen to this i'm in the zone if i wanted to write something for transgender deathmatch legend i'd probably go back and listen to that playlist and then like that i'd be more in the zone what other subtle influences do you think have crept into um terminal are there any sort of like sneak peeks or easter eggs or anything or things that like you wouldn't think of beyond the big three we talked about like you mentioned Black Sails briefly and a couple of other things like Twin Peaks. How do those like impact the narrative? Yeah. Twin Peaks, the twin like Black Sails I use often as just like a good go-to point for like pirate epics, essentially. And also, you know, pirates on an island against you know, essentially like I remember 
joking with someone about the pirate fiction of just like, oh, my equivalent of like the Royal Navy is essentially abusive robots, which is such a weird glimpse into my mind, I feel. I feel that says fathoms about me. Um, Black Twin Peaks, it's a lot of like the dream stuff. I think the thing I found really interesting in the first Matrix film is how there's this often shift of like when Neo is still plugged into the Matrix, if he can't dreams begin and end and he can't always tell what he's in or what he isn't um and that kind of dream logic and discomfort and unknowability is kind of where like both paprika and twin peaks come in and then like there's often like shout outs and stuff like there's a wizard of oz reference in it because that's an influence for both twin peaks and the matrix and i found that fun i'm always curious where i find like my writing style influenced by stuff um i'm someone who can struggle to read a lot as an adult though i read a lot as a kid so i often think of my writing as almost like um conversationally sort of like monologues in some ways so that's probably an influence there's probably some influence by the fact that i've worked as a teacher for the last couple of years um I might be quitting that soon, I don't know. But, like, that probably influences stuff in terms of how I choose to express rules or things like that. Sometimes I feel I struggle against that influence. Um, and then also, you know, I think, like, the other subtle influence is, like, influences by people. Like, you know, I said, like, a lot of the, cho the choice to be sort of, like, revolutionary outlaws is by, like, things. It's based on things I believe in. And things I believe in are influenced by, by people. Um, the fact of the game having a sort of like coercive control influence, like that's, it's probably obvious that that's coming from somewhere in real life. Um, I know more about that, but I don't, I don't want to necessarily elaborate mm -hmm. on that, but like, then it's the fact that like, oh, people who, who maybe helped me through difficult times in those senses or people who, helps influence my perspective on stuff probably on there i give thanks to my therapist in the book because uh she helped me understand a lot of stuff as it related to like my mental health through a matrix metaphor and that was probably why i was thinking of the matrix and why it came there you know um it can be hard because every person is like a bundle of influences that are all sort of there and mixed up but I think of Terminal as like rather pretentiously like a point me bringing things from like everything I've learned both in games and often like from out of games for maybe like the past like seven years probably mm -hmm. like it's it's a game that does feel like to some extent like a culmination of stuff so I'm very excited for people to see it. Absolutely as I am too. Any closing thoughts Kayla? I guess I would say Kickstarter launches on the 20th. Go to terminal.ratwave.uk for it. There'll be links in the thing. Um, you know, please back the game. Uh, it's the first time I've done crowdfunding. Like I said, it's, also, it's a lot of firsts in this case. I'm very proud of it. I'd really love it to be successful. If we do really well, it will look even more beautiful because we'll increase the art budget. And we'll bring on some guest writers to like play in the world and just make as good a book as possible. Um, and the thing that would really help with that is 
people's support, both in terms of please back the game, but also please like shout about the game if you like the look of this, if this is something that you hear about and go, this feels cool and like something other people aren't doing. You know, say that because it's it's going to go far. That was my, that's my closing thought. But I guess, you know, everything that has a beginning has an end, Neo. And I suppose that does include this podcast. How long have you been storing that for? Have you always known you were going to end the podcast with that? <laughs>